This is Paul Adamson, and I'm in conversation with Lord Mandelson. Peter Mandelson is a former First Secretary of State of the United Kingdom and a for- former European Trade Commissioner. Uh, Peter, I don't want to talk too much about the past, but I don't want to start by talking about the Remain campaign. You were a key player there. You chaired various strategy committee meetings of the Remain campaign. So with the benefit of hindsight, what are the main lessons that you learned from your experience during the Remain campaign? Well, one lesson, of course, I can say this from a rather operational point of view, is that I wish we had had a strategy committee and I wish I had chaired it. Unfortunately, we didn't uh, uh, at the time. And the campaign, which was planned by a number of us, created, fundraised, the governance of it, the structure, the recruitment, uh, the war book, um, all the, the staples of the campaign uh, were put in place. But once the referendum was called and we were off, it was taken over uh, by number 10, uh, notably by the Prime Minister and his staff and the Chancellor and his staff. And th- they jumped very firmly into the driving seat. What, what are the lessons I draw uh, from it? Um, I think the following. The main one is that if you're going to have a referendum about Europe, anywhere in Europe, then you have got, during the course of that referendum, to talk about Europe, make the case for Europe, uh, and answer those who believe that nationalism, national sovereignty, uh, sort of a national exclusiveness, uh, are the answers to anything in the 21st century. Because the case that was made by the Leave campaign and their uh, slogan, their headline, was take back control. Well, you've got to make an argument about that. First of all, that we have not lost control over events. We've gained more control by pooling uh, sovereignty. That uh, in many policy areas, and certainly uh, in creating the uh, basis for strong economic growth in the future, creating a market uh, of the scale, the size, the integration that we have in Europe is absolutely uh, indispensable. Uh, and that you can only do this and address uh, other areas of public concern and public policy you know, if uh, you create the arrangements and the institutions in which countries can work properly together. That's what the European Union needs. That's what it does. You've also got to have something to say about immigration and migration, uh, free movement, uh, and the way in which that has become intertwined in people's heads with refugees, with asylum seekers, with... Uh, Europe's outer perimeter, which many people regard as insecure, uh, but also uh, the movement of people, uh, including many undesirables, who are wanting to do damage between member states in the European Union. You've got to have answers to all these things. Otherwise, as I say, again, you're going to be at a loss. Okay. And was that the net result of this, this, of this dictate from Number 10, that the, the, the official Remain campaign had its hands tied? It couldn't do what it wanted to do? Or would you, did you find certain ways to get around that? That directive from number 10. Look, I'm not saying that we were stool pigeons. No. But we weren't in the driving seat either. Uh, And I think there are lessons to be learned from that. Um, During the campaign, I mean, I have uh, directed or overseen three general election campaigns in Britain. 87, 97 and 2010. And I know that during the course of a campaign, you've got amongst the sort of leaders of it, I mean, people who are responsible for the strategic direction of it and the sort of day-to-day interventions, got to maintain a continuous conversation amongst yourselves. 
you know, you're examining, where you're breaking through, you know, the arguments that you're landing, um, what's stimulating the most interest, where people are sort of coming towards you in different things that you're saying. And the flip side of all that is where things are not landing, where you're not drawing people uh, towards you, where uh, you're not succeeding. And unless you have a continuous conversation about that, you can't remedy, you can't rectify uh, the uh, shortcomings or mistakes that you're making in a campaign and frankly we didn't have enough of that. Right. Well your recent podcast with Craig Oliver, the former communications chief of the Prime Minister David Cameron, he said that the, the reality was, and more or less a direct quote, was the leadership of the Labour Party well, did nothing to do with us, the campaign, and were very hostile. Is that a fair assessment? No, it's not entirely untrue but nor is it fair. Uh, and uh, whilst the leadership of the Labour Party left a lot to be desired. It's not because they're pro or anti-Europe. It's just that they're rather ineffective. You, you know, in political campaigning terms, in, in making and delivering a public message, they don't really know how to. Right. And that's the, that's the basic problem. It's as bad as that. It, it isn't just a sort of, you know, ambivalence about the European Union and Britain's membership of the EU. But I have to make another point, and that is that we succeeded in getting somewhere in the region of 65-67% of Labour voters out to vote for Remain. Conservative voters were around or just under 50%. And the Prime Minister, David Cameron, and all of us were counting on his leadership, I mean loyalty within his party and amongst Conservative voters to him as leader of the party, as Prime Minister, to deliver a much bigger uh, vote amongst Conservative voters for Remain than turned out to be the case. Right. Much attention has been given to the apparent tepid support that Jeremy Corbyn gave to the, to the campaign during, during the referendum campaign. But I want to talk more about the, the current situation of the Labour Party and, and actually switch away the attention from Jeremy Corbyn's leader and his entourage to the the pro-European, the moderate, if you like, uh, wing of the Labour Party, and explain to me why there have been so many calls now by that part of the Labour Party for a debate about free movement, controls about free movement, accepting almost the inevitability of Brexit. It seems rather almost counterintuitive. It, it, it's very simple uh, and uh, very concerning. It is because for the last 20 years, UKIP and the nationalists within the Conservative Party, have sought one strategic aim, and that is to identify EU and Britain's membership of the European Union with immigration and growing immigration. They wanted immigration and the EU to be completely synonymous in the public's mind. And it's Nigel Farage's great boast uh, that they succeeded in doing that. And I'm afraid too many uh, amongst the pro-European uh, groups in the Labour Party um, are falling for that. Well, They're inhaling uh, and they, uh, I think wrongly in my view, have concluded um, that because uh, Europe and the EU is synonymous with immigration in many people's minds, that therefore we have to be uh, sort of anti-immigration, we have to be anti-free movement uh, in order to understand and get on the same wavelength as our voters. I think that is uh, a big error of interpretation, mm. of judgment, but also from the Labour Party's uh, point of view. The idea that the Labour Party can and should abandon 
its own base, its own pro-European constituency. And I just remind you, mm. over two-thirds or around two-thirds of Labour voters voted to remain, not to leave. For the Labour Party now to, to all intents and purposes, to abandon its own uh, base, uh, to uh, uh, um, uh, sort of swallow whole uh, the the UKIP argument and the Tory nationalist argument that you know the reason why we've got to be anti-Europe is because it, it involves too much free movement uh, is a major uh, uh, concession uh, to their point of view, which uh, I don't think uh, uh, makes sense either in respect of the Labour Party's values and the principles it believes in, but also the effective working of our economy and our longer-term national economic uh, interest. But there's also a major tactical consideration as well. Where this position leads you, and where the Labour front bench are now, is essentially nodding through and being the handmaiden of the governments, the Tory governments, hard Brexit. And, in, in, and if and when, as I believe and many others believe, this whole strategy of the government will go pear-shaped, we will not be in a strong position down the road to say, you know, you've done this wrong, given that from the beginning we've essentially and tacitly agreed with and endorsed the course they're taking. And that is what the front bench are doing. And I, I, I don't lay that, by the way, uh, uh, simply or only at Jeremy Corbyn's door. Well, one last question on, on, that, on this before we move to these future scenarios that you're already sketching out for us, Peter. So it looks like, I mean, one could argue that they are, despite the, the, the core European base of the party you refer to in these constituencies and the membership, actually, the people who voted for Jeremy Corbyn originally uh, being pro-European, nonetheless, some of these people are simply scared about losing their, their seats at the next election. There's a UKIP threat or an anti-European threat and that they're worried about their re-election. Well, I'm not saying any of this is simple. You know, to, for the Labour Party to navigate its way through uh, Brexit, uh, given that, you know, essentially we lost the referendum, um, uh, it is difficult, it is tough, it's challenging, it takes real thinking about and political skill. don't, frankly, feel that I've seen a lot of that uh, on Labour's front bench. But, but, but more importantly than that, you know, they're drawing the wrong conclusion. The reason why in many Labour-held constituencies you know, there was a majority for leave is because, yes, you had some Labour people, many Labour people, not the majority, but many, voting to leave, plus Conservatives voting to leave, plus some Liberal Democrats, UKIP supporters mm. are voting to leave, as well as many people who haven't voted recently and were coming out to vote for the first time because they felt strongly. That doesn't mean to say that in those Labour-held constituencies the majority of Labour voters voted to leave. It means that a majority of their constituents voted to leave. And what I'm saying is that if the Labour Party wants to hold those constituencies at the next election, the first thing you've got to do is to retain your existing support, those who are already voting for you, your base, and then build out from that. And the argument I'm making is that the Labour Party is making a major strategic blunder in thinking that it can build its future electoral support on the back of those who voted to leave the European Union rather than uh, building on the back of those who voted to remain. It's a major blunder by the Labour Party uh, and uh, the entire front bench is culpable, not just the leader. Uh, Keir Starmer, who speaks for the Labour Party uh, on Brexit matters, um, you know, were he ever to talk to people 
you know, like me and with our experience and background, uh, he, he would learn uh, uh, from us uh, how dangerous uh, and self-defeating uh, their chosen path is. It will, uh, it, it will not do anything for Britain's economic prospects or our national interest. It will make many of our people feel rejected and let down, uh, who are pro-European, but also, as I say, um, it will neutralise any Labour Party ability to criticise the government subsequently uh, uh, over its Brexit policies, when, to all intents and purposes, we've endorsed them for, at the outset. Well, let's switch our focus in this final part of the podcast, Peter, to the government and and the future. Uh, in a few days' time, Theresa May is about to trigger Article 50, and then then all bets are off, as it were. Where, what is your current view? What's likely to happen? Is it a, a soft Brexit, a hard Brexit, a, a no-deal Brexit? What is your view? No, it's what one of the stunning uh, developments since the referendum is the way in which the government... Um, uh, has moved uh, from uh, a, a broadly um, pro-EU, pro-single market position. Remember that the Prime Minister herself made a very, very good and strong and effective speech saying how necessary it was for Britain to stay in the single market, how the single market was indispensable Before the uh, referendum, to us, yeah. and during the referendum yeah. too. Yeah. They've moved from that position to uh, saying, well, we're not only coming out of the European Union, but we're going to leave the single market, we're going to abandon the customs union, uh, and as the Prime Minister subsequently said, we're going to leave every single bit of the European uh, Union, every single bit of it. And so they're pushed then towards, as the centre of gravity in the party moves, towards a sort of rather plaintive cry and demand for a comprehensive free trade agreement, uh, which David Davis, the Brexit secretary, claims he stood up and said this will give us exactly the same benefits in trade uh, as we have now uh, in our membership of the EU and participation in the single market. Of course, delusionary, but that's what he uh, uh, says. But if that's not uh, enough, you've got senior members of the government led by the foreign secretary saying no. Let's not even go for a comprehensive free, free trade agreement. You know, let's not have any deal at all. Then we'll really be fantastically well off. He says it would be perfectly okay if Britain left the European Union without any future trade deal at all. Now, that, I'm afraid, just demonstrates how far that centre of gravity of movement uh, has moved uh, across the government, across Conservative MPs. Um, and rather than sort of hold on you know, and tug firmly uh, on the other end of the rope, um, uh, w where I would have hoped you know, my own party would be also be sort of putting greater weight on the other end of the scales, essentially Mrs May has uh, taken the decision that she simply needs to be dragged uh, wherever her, her party uh, wants to take her. Uh, and... No, in very simple political terms, I sort of understand why from her point of view. She's made a decision that she does not want to be the fourth Conservative Prime Minister to be brought down over Europe. Margaret Thatcher was first, then John Major, then David Cameron, and now her. And she's saying, look, I'm sorry, but I'm going to go where my party is. I'm going to secure my own position and my own mandate. Uh, I'm not going to be crucified on the cross of Europe uh, thank you very much. And if that means sacrificing uh, uh, the country's national economic interests, so be it.
Okay, so there seems to be general agreement that a deal has to be in place uh, between the UK and EU27 by sometime in the autumn of next year. What's going to happen? Will, will the, the, the Houses of Parliament, the House of Commons, and even the Lords, where you're a member, be given an opportunity to have a so-called meaningful vote on this deal or not? What is your view? I'd be very surprised. There'll be a vote. It will be nominal, it will be token, and too late to affect anything. If the government had really been serious about this, they would have accepted an amendment, a change on the face of the bill, the, uh, the Article 50 bill, the exit bill, which actually put this into a statute. No, they didn't want to do that. Uh, they wanted to say one thing in the House of Commons, um, you know, embracing those who wanted a meaningful vote, then in the briefing afterwards undermine what they had said in the chamber, but certainly not to see it put into law, because I don't think they're serious about it. Okay. We have to leave it there, Peter. I hope we have a chance to have one or more of these podcasts in the future. But Pleasure. In the meantime, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.